You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Morning, everybody. It's been a number of months, but uh, we're getting back to John, the Gospel of John again. It's been about three months, I think, since we were there last. Get a bit of light on the scene, because John's Gospel is all about light and darkness. Um. Given that it's been about three months, we probably should have a a very brief review of um, John's Gospel. And John's very clear at the end of his Gospel about the reasons he wrote it. And he said in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, this Gospel is written, that you may believe that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John opens up his gospel in chapter 1 by making it as plain as he probably could that Jesus Christ is God. He's fully and totally and completely God. He is the uncreated creator of everything. Then he goes on to make it equally clear that Jesus became man, fully and totally and completely man. He took on humanity, took humanity into his deity. And he became a man to live the perfectly obedient and sinless life that Adam was expected to live when he was created in the Garden of Eden. But Adam failed, as we know, plunging himself into sin and condemnation and alienation from God and Adam brought the just penalty of death on himself and as the representative of the human race on all his ancestors, which includes us. So God's plan of salvation swung into action. God himself would provide the solution to our rebellion and alienation and death. God's plan required the death of one who would also be a representative of many, just like Adam was. The first sacrifice, if you've read Genesis, you would recall, the first physical death was that of an animal in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. God himself provided that animal on behalf of Adam and Eve and he used the skin to cover their nakedness. Then around about 2,000 years later, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved as a burnt offering. Abraham obeyed God right up to the point of tying his beloved son Isaac onto the altar and lifting up the knife to plunge it into his heart. But then God pulled Abraham up and provided instead a ram for him to sacrifice as a substitute for his son. About 500 years after that, Abraham's descendants were coming out of Egypt and are in the wilderness of of, uh, Sinai on their way to the promised land and God instituted a regular sacrificial system. Every year a lamb without blemish was to be sacrificed on behalf of the people as a substitute to cover over their sin. And that system continued once the people were settled into the land that we now know as Israel. For the next 1,500 years, 
Lambs and bulls and goats and pigeons were sacrificed. Untold millions, maybe billions of innocent animals were offered up as a sacrifice to cover over the sins of the people. But no amount of sacrifice was able to take away their sins forever. The writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 10.11, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. For a permanent solution, the people need the sacrifice that was perfect in every way. So Jesus came as the Lamb of God, it tells us in John chapter 1. In fact, Jesus was the one that all those millions or billions of sacrifices down through the years were pointing to. They were all representing Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life as the representative for humanity. And at the end of that perfect and sinless life, he was unjustly tried and executed. He was sacrificed as a substitute for humanity. But because his life was perfect in every way, this sacrifice was accepted by God as a complete and final sacrifice that does take away sins. Again, the writer of the Hebrews said in chapter 9, Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 14. You recall that John chapter 3 begins with Jesus talking to the great teacher Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, he's called, about his need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus can't understand what Jesus is talking about. Then Jesus goes on to talk about the death that he himself would soon face being lifted up on a cross and the purpose of that death. Now God's love for humanity was displayed on that cross. The extent of his great love was demonstrated when he sent his son to bear the punishment that we all deserve. But his righteousness was also displayed on that cross. God's holiness and his hatred of sin were seen in the severity of the punishment that Jesus took on our behalf. When Jesus took on himself the punishment that our rebellion demanded, he testified to the world that God is absolutely and unquestionably righteous and holy. The only reason that we now don't have to face the punishment of eternal death is because God's own Son, hung there as our representative and our substitute. And it was all part of God's plan to save humanity. For he he did not send his son the first time, John tells us, to condemn the world. So if we pick up in verse 14 of chapter 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John makes it clear that God's desire is not to condemn, rather it's to save. So what then is all this talk about perishing, about being condemned? Why would that even be a possibility? Why, especially if Jesus came to take away sins, why not just save everyone? Mike gave us some insights into this last week when he was preaching about the holiness of God. And he showed us, you'll recall if you were here last week, that he showed us from Scripture that God is not only holy, he is holy, holy, holy. God is perfect, pure, without sin, without fault. And in the burning ferocity of God's holiness, anything impure is consumed. Anything impure is destroyed just by a look at God's holiness. And thanks to Adam, each one of us is full of impurities. Remember, Moses was unable to look on God's glory. Even though he wanted to, he asked to see God's glory. And God told him, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah, as Mike shared with us last week, was undone when he got a glimpse of the holy God in the throne room. And even the seraphim, those sinless creatures themselves, could not look on the holy God, but covered their faces with their wings before him. What kind of God are we talking about here? There's so holy, even holy creatures can't look on him. The Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, when he got a glimpse of the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, said, I fell at his feet as though dead. God's holiness is a consuming fire. It will destroy anything that is not perfectly holy. So that, of course, has been a problem for mankind since the beginning. Adam and Eve were created perfect and without sin, as you know. And in that state of perfection, they would live forever. They would have eternal life. And they walked in the Garden of Eden daily with God, without guilt, without fear, without shame. Adam and Eve were able to look on the face of God every day. But in that garden, amongst all the trees... There were two special ones. It says in Genesis 2.9, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam only had one command to obey, just one. 
he could eat of every tree that was in the garden. And that suggests to me he could eat of the tree of life as well. That wasn't excluded. Every tree except one. Seems a pretty simple request, doesn't it? As long as you avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you would live and live forever. In fact, it doesn't even say you need to avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from it. That's simple, surely. If they would obey that simple command, they would experience what God had designed humanity for. They would live forever in his presence. But we read, of course, in the next chapter of Genesis that the serpent put some doubt in their minds about God's requirements. Was God really concerned about their welfare by banning them from that tree? Or was he just being selfish? You know, of course, where this is going. It's the forbidden fruit that attracted Adam and Eve. It's the forbidden fruit that attracts us. Adam and Eve chose to ignore God. And they listened instead to the serpent's lies and half-truths to satisfy their own desires. As a consequence, they were not only expelled from the garden, they were placed under a sentence of death. One author has said, from that point forward, human history has been a series of funerals. He's right. Every funeral should remind us that what God said in the garden, if you disobey me, you will die. Every funeral should remind us that still stands true. So there needed to be a plan that would deal with the issue of sin and rebellion and death and a solution that would be effective forever. In John 16, we see a one-verse summary of God's solution for sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. A one-verse summary of the gospel. God gave his Son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Adam's problem began when he didn't believe God. He acted according to his own desires, and the result was death, separation, condemnation, and that remains our problem today. We willingly choose to eat the forbidden fruit of independence, rebellion, self-will, self-reliance, And we refuse to come to God for healing and deliverance. That's why the cross was necessary. In verse 18, John goes on to say, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in Jesus is not not condemned. Is not. That's present tense. It's not something we have to worry about when we get in the future, whether we will be condemned sometime in the future. It's true now. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are not condemned right now. But those who do not believe, it's not the same story. To condemn means to judge a person guilty, deserving of punishment. 
So what happened to Adam when he didn't believe God? The solution, of course, is surprisingly simple. Believe. Seems almost too simple to be, to be true. When we believe, the condemnation we deserve is taken away from us. Instead, it's put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who bore the just penalty for sin on the cross on behalf of all those who would believe. And once the penalty was paid by him, it could no longer be demanded of us, for he is our representative. That's the legal concept of double jeopardy. I'm sure you've heard about it or maybe even watched the movie. Once a person has served the sentence for his crime, he can't be charged with it again. And Jesus Christ served the sentence as our representative, as the representative of all who would believe in him, him. but only on behalf of those who would believe in him. Those who will not believe still face condemnation. That means there's a choice that every person has to make. Except by faith that Christ has paid the penalty on your behalf or choose to pay it yourself. Which would you prefer? Which would you choose? Those who choose to trust Christ are declared not guilty thanks to the work of the cross and their trust in Christ. Of course, that doesn't mean that when we sin, which we inevitably do, that we don't wallow in our guilt and shame, that we don't feel condemned by our behaviour and attitudes. But when that happens, it says that we've forgotten the power of the cross. For the cross tells us that we're free from guilt. We're free from shame. We're free from condemnation. We are not condemned. That's the offer of the gospel. Choose life. Choose to put your trust in Christ for rescue and eternal life or choose the alternative, condemnation. There's no in-between. John has made it plain here that those who choose to believe in Jesus Christ have eternal life now, not just in the future. By contrast, those who do not believe are condemned already. Again, this is present tense. Again, it is a present reality. Condemnation is not reserved for the last day, the day Jesus returns to wind this world up. It already applies to those who will not believe. Whenever we hear of a serious crime, a murder or a rape, for example, we instantly think that criminals should be punished. We want and we demand justice. Sadly, the criminals often go uncaught and unpunished. It's because our legal system and our justice system is imperfect. If our law and our police force and our justice system would be, were perfect, the criminal would be caught, he would be tried, he would be condemned, and justice would be served. You could say that if our legal system was perfect, the criminal would be condemned already. It would only be a matter of time before he was caught, convicted and sentenced. God's legal system is perfect. Those who refuse to abide by his law are condemned already. 
It's only a matter of time before the sentence is meted out on them. And there's no escape from that penalty outside of the remedy that God has provided and God has so freely provided. Believe in Jesus Christ. He offers that remedy freely to everyone without exception. There is no one who will not be freed from condemnation if they will only come to Christ for the remedy. It applies to everyone. But if they will not come, there's nothing left for them to face but condemnation and judgment. And they'll have no excuse. They'll have no defence. Because there's nothing physical and there's not even anything intellectual standing in their way of coming. Their barrier is moral. Their barrier is that they do not want to come. John goes on in verse 19 to say, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In my early teens, I had a supernatural encounter with God. I've told the story to a few people here. I'm sure most of you have heard it at some stage. Before that encounter, God was some vague concept that didn't really mean much to me at all. But after that encounter, I knew God was real. I couldn't, couldn't deny it. But the initial glow, the buzz of that encounter wore off over the next, I'm not sure, a few months or so. I don't remember now, but But after that uh, buzz wore off, I turned my back on God and for the next 15 years ran as far and as fast as I could in the opposite direction. And while I was running away, I got involved in stuff that ranged from the merely embarrassing to the shameful to degrading. And let me tell you, none of it was done in the light. All of it was done in the darkness. There's a lot of stuff from that period of my life that I wouldn't like to see posted on Facebook. But why would I live like that, even when I knew God was real? It's because I wanted to continue in my wickedness. I hated anything that might bring it to the light, anything that might expose my heart and my actions to the public. Just like a cockroach, when the light came on, I scampered to the darkness. That's the thing about sin. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin keeps us away from the light of the gospel. Sin separates us from our saviour. Worse than that, it makes us try to hide from the only one who can help us. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did in the garden? I was afraid, so I hid. It's a tragedy because there's one who is always willing, ready, always able to help us shake off the shame, the guilt and the bondage of sin. But we prefer to remain in the darkness.
John says that people loved the darkness rather than the light. That speaks of our moral state. It speaks volumes about our moral state. We don't avoid the light because we're unable to come to it. We avoid it because we don't want to come to it. We'd rather remain blind to the freedom of rescue and stay in our filth and our degradation like the prodigal son who in his stubborn rebellion preferred for a time at least to eat the leftovers of the pig slop rather than return to his father's house. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, John says, and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. One of the signs that we have come to the light is that we do come to the light. Does that make sense? One of the signs that we have come is that we do come. Adam and Eve tried to hide their disobedience and they only confessed when the light came to them. King David tried to hide his adultery with Bathsheba, only confessed when it was brought to the light by the prophet Nathan. Nathan. And as Christians, we too try to hide our sin. But our instinct should be to come to the light in repentance, in gratitude that God has already forgiven us. That should be our first port of call, not our last. Sadly, that's often not the case. Think about it. If you've been born again, then all of your sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Not just past sin, but present sin and future sin. All of it has been paid for on the cross. If you've been born again, you're declared not guilty in the sight of God. There's no more judgment. There's no more condemnation. Not now, not ever. If you've been born again, his mercy is ever-present. We no longer have to beg for it. We no longer have to hide from him. Imagine the freedom that you would live in if you truly understood this. If you truly understood that every moment of every day you can come running back to the light knowing that you'll be received with open arms. I wish I could get that engraved on my heart that every moment of every day, regardless of my sin, I can come back to what the open arms of the Saviour. Our emotions work against us in this, of course. We sin and we automatically feel bad. We feel ashamed and unworthy to approach this holy God. The first thing we want to do is hide. And we forget that rescue from sin and condemnation and death is a free gift. It's a free gift. It's not something we earned by our good behaviour in the first place. Because it's a free gift, it's not something we can maintain by our good behaviour. If it was true when we first believed, it remains true every day of our lives. If we couldn't earn our rescue then, why do you think 
We must earn it now. How we feel at any one moment cannot undo truth. Cannot undo truth. The simple fact that we struggle with sin and the fact that we would even consider returning to the light after sinning is evidence that God is at work in us. By contrast, the reason some people don't struggle with their sin is that they prefer their sin. That's what John has been telling us. It might sometimes make them feel bad or worried that they might get caught. They may feel guilty or ashamed, but they don't feel bad enough that they would turn from their sin and turn towards the light. For them, their sin is still a greater pleasure than the thought of being cleansed from it. If you've had enough of living in darkness this morning, there is a solution. Come to the light. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If you're sick of the darkness, you fit nicely into the category of whoever. God did not did not send Jesus Christ to condemn whoever, whoever would believe, but so that whoever might be saved through him. The solution is to put your trust in him this morning. Turn to him. Acknowledge that you've sinned against him by your willful rebellion, by your love of darkness. Ask him to cleanse you, to declare you not guilty because the penalty for your rebellion has been paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. Trust him to keep his promise that he will turn away none who come to him in faith. If you reject that offer, you can be sure of condemnation and eternal punishment. Nothing is more certain. Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn, but when he comes the second time, it will be to apply that judgment of condemnation that unbelievers are already under. Remember, whoever does not believe is condemned already. None will escape who reject the light. Don't be one of those who will face his judgment and condemnation when he returns. Come to the light today. For it's a promise of God no less than the promise to rescue those who would believe is a promise. It's a promise and a warning. If you will not come, you face nothing but condemnation. If instead you're one who returns to the light after sinning, no matter how ashamed you may feel about it, then you can have confidence that God is at work in you to bring you to full salvation to full freedom from your sin. He guarantees that he will do that for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. You can have confidence that you are not condemned, that the doors are always wide open to welcome you before the throne of grace. The Lord promises to finish the work he has begun. He won't leave you hanging. He won't drop you halfway there or put you in a too hard basket. You were in the too hard basket already. 
but by the blood of the cross, by the blood that Jesus shed, by the new birth that the Holy Spirit brings about. There's no more too hard basket for God. He will complete his work of conforming you to the image of Christ. He will do it. The simple fact that you return to the light is evidence that you're one of the good shepherd's sheep. It's a mark that God has you in the palm of his hand. In John chapter 10, you'd recall the story of Jesus tells about the good shepherd. And he says in there, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And none will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Who or what has the power to snatch you out of those two hands, the Father's and Jesus' hands? No one. Nothing. No one will snatch them out of the hand of Jesus, he said. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That seems pretty emphatic to me. You're secure if you put your trust in Christ for your salvation. Your faith itself is a gift given by God and it's a gift that is sustained by God. It can never fail because God always fulfills his promises. What greater promise, what greater gift is there than this and what greater warning to those who will not believe is there than we've seen this passage. Let's close with prayer, should we? Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to the truth of your infinite grace, your infinite mercy, offered to us by the work of your Son on that cross all those years ago? Would you keep us, Father, ever mindful that the light we now live in will never be extinguished? Would you stir us, Holy Spirit, to return instantly to the light when we sin? For we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who always intercedes on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would prompt us to return to the light as our first response, not our last. And we pray, Lord, that you would open doors for us to share this good news, to share it with those who haven't yet heard it. We pray that you would open the eyes and the hearts of our family, our friends, our workmates, our neighbours, our fellow human beings to accept this free offer of rescue from sin and condemnation and death. And we ask all this in the name of the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.